So I wonder this morning if you are a tolerant person. Are you a, a tolerant person? It's the kind of question that we all feel we ought to say yes to. In our culture, any hint of intolerance is immediately met with an outcry of a condemnation from the offended party on either side of the aisle of all religions and none. Uh, recently, Chris Broussard of ESPN and uh, uh, Don Cathy of Chick-fil-A were vilified for speaking out against homosexuality. Uh, meanwhile, uh, leading evangelicals poured equally acerbic language out upon those who were uh, condemning them. Uh, we live in a day where tolerance is a sensitive issue. But it's also an issue that we have to deal with uh, personally. How is it in this age of tolerance that you can navigate and engage with your atheist professor, with your Muslim neighbor, with your homosexual friend? And then, as a church, how do we approach these things? What is the culture of our congregation? What kind of atmosphere do we want to be alive and well within these walls? This morning, we're going to look at these issues first by doing a quick overview of our culture's approach to tolerance. And secondly, by looking at some biblical principles that we can apply to our lives as we seek to navigate a culture that is far from God. And then thirdly, by looking at the culture we want to have in our congregation. So let's dive in then together. First of all, let me say that Don Carson has recently written an excellent little book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. We have a copy in our church library, and I'm going to beg, borrow, and steal from it in this sermon, footnote firmly in place. In this book, Carson contrasts two different approaches to tolerance, the old approach and the new approach. The old approach, uh, we see that tolerance used to be defined as the acceptance of the existence of different views. Accepting the existence of different views. So it was okay to hold uh, strong opinions, strong convictions, uh, but insist that other people have the right to dissent from those views, from those opinions, and even defend their right uh, to dissent. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, was the spirit of this old uh, tolerance. This old tolerance was based on the assumption that there is objective truth, that objective truth is out there and that it is our duty to pursue it and uh, to know it. So if you're a Muslim and I am a Christian, it is right for us to engage and with respect and civility to reason and debate and disagree with each other because both of us want the truth ultimately to win out. This old tolerance has been replaced in our day with a new tolerance. Tolerance now that is defined as accepting these different views themselves. Not just accepting that they exist, but accepting them themselves. So we hold that other people's beliefs and perspectives ought not be challenged or opposed. The United Nations Declaration on Principles of Tolerance asserted in 1995 Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. This new tolerance is based on the idea that no one view is exclusively true. We accept all views because they are all 
equally true and right. So if you are a Muslim and I am a Christian, we don't debate and engage, but rather celebrate that all these views will ultimately lead up the same mountain. Now this shift is subtle in form, but is very significant in substance. We've moved from the free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of all opinions. So if you are a a Muslim and I am a Christian, the issue is no longer, well, which one is true? But how can we navigate life so that no one is offended? And this new understanding of tolerance has somewhat been etched in stone in our culture. It's become a foundational assumption. It has become a necessary tenant, the air that we breathe, so that if you challenge someone else's beliefs, you may quickly be labeled as judgmental, as a bigot, as intolerant. And in our day, few things are worse than that. Carson notes that this new tolerance is incongruously intolerant of those who have the audacity to challenge it. Now all of this talk of tolerance requires a a thoughtful response from us in the church. Of course we're unable to follow uh, this new tolerance of our day. Uh, We gladly insist, of course, that other people have the right to hold differing views and we would even defend Uh, their right to hold those views. But we also think that those views may be deeply mistaken. And we want to do all that we can to engage with them so that those who are far from God may be filled uh, with life in Christ. For us, Jesus is our absolute. He is our non-negotiable. And we seek to follow him, not the spirit of our age. And so we need to consider how we can live as salt and light in this world that is often far from God. Engaging as salt and light that we might participate in winning it for the gospel. To that end, let's look at six principles, six biblical principles that help us engage with this culture that is far from God. The first of them comes from this passage in John chapter 8, which is just one of my favorite passages. And it shows us that as we seek to engage a world that is far from God, we must remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember the grace that we have been given in Jesus and therefore remember who we are in him. As we seek to move into a world that does not know him, we must remember all that we have been given in the gospel. An incredible story unfolds in John chapter 8 here. It's, it's early in the morning and Jesus is teaching and there's a, a crowd gathered around him and I would love to be a fly on the wall to, to hear what he was talking about that morning. The, the silence of the morning is then suddenly interrupted as the scribes and the Pharisees burst into this teaching session and pour, uh, throw this poor woman into the middle of uh, the scene. We know that they are doing this to try and trick Jesus. They say, the law tells us that this woman should be stoned because we caught her in adultery. We caught her in the act. We caught her red-handed. She is a sinner and should be stoned. What do you think we should do with her? Seeking to find a way to accuse Jesus if he goes against the law of Moses. 
Of course, we know that they're up to nothing but tricks in the fact that they have caught this woman uh, in the act, but have left the man where he was. The, Lord, uh, the, the, the Lord's word and law had commanded that men and women would be treated absolutely equally in these circumstances, and yet they have decided just to bring uh, the woman uh, to uh, this accusation. Jesus is always disarming in his response. And in response to these questions, he stops and he stoops. And he starts to write on the ground with his finger. We have no idea what he writes. You can just imagine the kind of confused air of the scribes and the Pharisees. They sort of look at him and look at the ground and sort of wonder, what what kind of response is this to the things that we are saying? And Jesus stands up again and he says, you know, you're right. The law says that we should stone her. So... If any of you have not sinned, any of you who is without sin, take a rock and stone her to death. What happens? A silence. A silence until, if you hold your Bible really close, you hear the rocks begin to drop. Starting with the older ones, what an interesting detail. Those who have been around the block once or twice, those who have lived the longest are aware of their own frailty and their own brokenness and their own inability to live as they ought, aware of their own sin. It comes with that sort of wisdom and maturity. Until little by little, there is no one left but the woman standing there with Jesus. Now, I think when we read this text, at that moment seems like a warm moment when, you know, now it's just she and Jesus, you know, great. But actually, this is a terrifying moment. This is a deeply threatening moment. Why? Because he is the one who hasn't sinned, and so he has every right to pick up rocks and stone her. He would be well within his rights to uh, exert justice upon her for her uh, crimes. But what does he do? He stops and he says, where are all those people that condemned you? Drawing her attention to the fact that they have all left. She replies that they have gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and I leave your life of sin. You understand that as, as we move out into this world and into this world that does not know God, we're not the people who drop rocks. We are the women who deserve to be stoned for the things that we, are done, we have done. And we are the people who hear Jesus say, neither do I condemn you, so go and I leave your life of sin. We are the people who have been showered with grace upon grace, though we deserved it not. We remember who we are as we move out into this world. We don't move out with a haughty, condescending, judgmental spirit when we ourselves have been treated with such grace. We move out with humility, with compassion, with with grace. We move into this world remembering the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second principle that's helpful as we move out into this world, it comes in Matthew 5 verse 44 where Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Love your enemies. Those in our culture who make a habit of blistering with moral outrage across our TV screens or our radio waves or even over coffee with friends, convince no one but those who already agree with them. True tolerance means having convictions but also engaging with others with civility and respect, seeking to love those who are opposed 
to us. And this is so important for several reasons. First of all, because of all that I've just said about grace. We are a people who love because he first loved us. We move out to love our enemies because of how the Lord has dealt with us. Secondly, though, we also move out with love because we've been commanded to. The Lord has commanded us to love our enemies. He tells us in Hebrews 12, 14 that we are to pursue peace with everyone. In Titus 3, 2 that we are to show a courtesy to everyone. The MO of the Christian is to treat others with a, a love and a respect and a civility that they might not expect from their opponents. Thirdly, though, it's so important that we do this, not just because of how we've been treated and because we're commanded to, but because it's also, um, th- th- there's a practical reason. It's also how we can be persuasive in this world. See, doing things God's way works because it's the right thing to do. And God has ordered this world and and called us to be persuasive to this world, not through judgment and hate, but through grace and love. Consider these proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, and a harsh word stirs up anger. If you've ever listened to talk radio, you know that proverb is true. (laughs) Proverbs 25.15. I love this proverb. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Words of gentleness, civility, respect are powerful and persuasive. And if we want to make an impact for this culture, in this culture, we don't move out with anger, but we move out loving our enemies. In a world gone mad, we ought to be known for our love. Shall know. They are Christians by their love. Third principle that helps us move out into this culture that is far from God, it comes in many places in Scripture, and it's simply this, that we, as a people of God, must preserve a place for truth. Preserve a place for truth. Our world compartmentalizes truth so that there are some areas in which it's, it's possible to know truth and other areas not so much. So, for example, in, in science, it is, it's possible to know a certain truth. In morality, it's a little less possible. And when it comes to religion and faith, it's not possible at all to to know real truth. To speak of the truth with a capital T is somewhat sort of culturally insensitive. It is um, a little unsophisticated. It's sort of lacking in good taste. But we believe, as people of God, that we do have the truth with a capital T. Not because of our wisdom, not because we've figured it out, but because he's given it to us. John 17, verse 17, thy word is truth. Pilate looks Jesus in the eye and says, what is truth? The irony being that he is looking in the eye of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. In the word of God and in Jesus Christ, the truth has been revealed to us. And so we are not shy about proclaiming that it is true with a capital T in an absolute sense. For us to to shrink back from such a claim is for us to accept that the emperor really is clothed. We see the flaws in our culture's approach. And like G.K. Chesterton, we know that the object of opening our minds, like the object of opening our mouths, is to shut it again on something solid. 
love that quote. Shut it again of something sort. Of course, we're open-minded. We're open-minded because we long to know truth. And when we discover truth in His Word and in Christ, we commit to it. We humbly insist that there is such a thing as objective truth and that it's our duty to pursue it. Fourth principle then, as we seek to engage a world that is far from God, is simply this, that we are to distinguish between different types of diversity. Distinguish between different types of diversity. What do I mean by that? Well, in our day and age, diversity has been, the free diversity has become a thing that you can't say anything against. It's like apple pie or mothering. Except sometimes apple pie tastes really bad. Okay? And more seriously, sometimes mothers abuse their children. And in the same way, something isn't good just because it's diverse. Yes, there are glorious forms of diversity. Diversity of gender and race and culture and language and passion and gifting. And we believe that God is so majestic, so glorious that the the supreme worth of his glory could only be displayed in creation through remarkable variety. And so when we see this glorious diversity, we, we celebrate it and we defend it. But we also see in our world a kind of godless diversity. One extreme example that everyone, whatever their beliefs would agree on, is that um, some men are aroused by their wives and others by children. This is not the kind of diversity that anyone would uphold or support. Just because something is diverse does not mean that it is good. Isaiah says, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, perhaps in the name of diversity. Who puts darkness for light and light for darkness, again in the name of diversity. Who puts bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Some diversity is glorious, but some is godless. And we are to have a discerning eye to recognize when the latter, that godless diversity, is masquerading as the former. And we're not afraid to say that diversity can't be used as a trump card. Just because it's diverse doesn't mean that it's good. Fourth principle as we navigate. Fifth one, um, much simpler and much more clear, and it's simply this. As we move out into this world that doesn't know God, we evangelize. We evangelize. Why? Because we understand that our nation's greatest need is not that it be truly tolerant of Christianity, but that it be totally transformed by Jesus Christ. We have uh, the first things first, and we recognize that God has not sent us out to play defense. He has sent us out to play offense. He has told us, go make disciples of all nations. We are to be a people who are known for what we are for, not just for those things that we are against. And so we move out into this culture, bringing the grace and truth of Jesus to a world that's in desperate need of him. This may have an impact on culture. And of course, historically, when you see at times of revival, there is always this um, effect of salt and light upon the wider culture. But we understand that that's not, even, that's not really our primary goal. Our primary goal is that people would know Jesus and that those who are currently uh, on the road marked hell would be brought into a saving relationship with him. 
And so as we think about moving out into this world, we don't get confused as to what the most important thing is. And so we evangelize. Sixth and final principle that we reflect upon as we move out into this world that does not know God is simply this, that we, as we do so, we rest in God. We rest in God. We trust Him. The apocalyptic rhetoric of so many Christian organizations in our day is not necessary for children who are so loved by their father. We believe, and the Bible makes clear to us, that our father controls all things, and Ephesians 1.11 is working all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. We believe that it is God who is ultimately in control of the universe at large and the physical world and the affairs of nations and the conduct of kings and rulers and um, the outward successes and failures and your birth, your life, your death are all firmly in his hand. And so as we move out into this world, we move out at trusting him, trusting these things to his care, not with this fearful apocalyptic spirit, but seeking to follow him peacefully and faithfully and joyfully because we know that he's the one that's in control. Six things then to help us as we move out into this world that doesn't know God. Let me close then by talking about the culture of our congregation. What kind of culture do we want to have? What kind of atmosphere? What kind of experience do we want it to be when it comes when people come to this church. And let's return to John chapter 8, and look particularly at verse 11, where we see the two pillars that are to be at the foundation of our culture here. In verse 10, Jesus says to the woman, has no one condemned you? And Jesus, uh, she says, no one. And Jesus replies, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more first pillar that defines the culture of our congregation is grace. Go now. Before he says go now, he says, neither do I condemn you. And as Jesus treated this woman, and as Jesus has treated us, so we treat other people. We want to respond in the same way that Jesus has responded to us. And so we expect sin, and we expect brokenness, and we expect messiness. Why? Because we're sinful, broken, and messy. And so we have this, this atmosphere of grace that will rule and reign in these pews because we will be a people who love much as we have been loved much and a people who forgive much as we have been forgiven much. We want that kind of atmosphere where people can come with their mess and with their baggage and know that they'll find one here who says, neither do I condemn you. Atmosphere of grace. Second pillar, though, comes from his words, go, and from now on, sin no more. This pillar of grace is accompanied by the pillar of truth. The pillar of truth. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Grace is not true grace if it is not accompanied by the truth. If, if we don't hold these things together in tension, then all we are doing is, is offering a, a weak, Maudlin, sentimental, wishy-washy form of feel-goodism. True biblical grace always has substance to it. 
And it's gracious to be truthful. This is why Jesus commands this woman to sin no more. Think last week reflected upon God's law, which is our blueprint for living, the blueprint for our fulfillment and for our flourishing. And when we encourage others and exhort them and do all that we can that they might follow these laws as surely as we seek to follow these laws, we are being gracious to them because we are emphasizing those truths that will bring them life. And so, yes, we want to be a church that welcomes people from whatever circumstances they're in. And then we want to speak the truth to them in love, providing words of life that their souls are looking for so that they may move on from the circumstance in which they find themselves just now. We want to be a place that is full of grace and truth. Are we a tolerant people? I guess it depends. Depends on your definition of tolerance. I would say we absolutely are. We have firm convictions, but we also recognize people's right to disagree with those convictions and would defend that right on their behalf. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to do all that we can to engage with them and persuade them to follow the life-giving truth of the Word and of the Gospel. As we do that, as we move out into this world, we remember the grace that's been given to us. We seek to love our enemies. We preserve a place for truth and distinguish between different types of diversity. We evangelize. We rest in God. And we become a church. We become a place and continue to be a place that is formed more and more into the likeness of Christ, who, we read, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Full of grace, full of truth. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that each and every one of us right now would hear your words to us, neither do I condemn you, that we would revel in that grace and the forgiveness that is ours. And that we would also hear that word of truth, go and from now on sin no more. That we would be more and more conformed into your image and your likeness and that we would flourish and live those lives you have called us to. Lord, a significant part of that life is, is moving out into our culture that is far from you. And so we do pray that you would make us models of grace and truth that are disarming to our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, that we might be the salt and light this world as so needs. And we pray these things in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen.